that I, that I would like to uh, highlight for you in the text, partially because I can't still speak too awfully long without melting down, and my wife will not be happy with me, and <laughs> Charles has already set up a timer up for me to watch. I'm not supposed to be speaking too awfully long yet, so that's why we're trying to keep this under control. In any case, there are many things that can be said about the text this morning, verses 13 through 42. We're actually going to look a little bit beyond 42. Um, but there's only a few things, again, that I want to highlight for you. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can jump into the text. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning as we open your word and as we consider what you say in this uh, story of Paul's initial um, travel in his first missionary journey. I pray that you will help us to learn much, be reminded of much, be challenged, be encouraged, and worship you. So help us to understand it. In your name I pray. Amen. So we had in the previous section of chapter 13 his initial sending and then his initial communication, if you remember we saw it last week. After his initial communication of the Gospel with Sergius Paulus and of course this gentleman that's called Bar-Jesus that we looked at last week, both a positive and negative interaction. We come to verse 13 and following, and I'm not going to read through the entirety of the text because Tom just read through it with us, but I want to start out in verse 13 and wander. I'm going to wander down to the point where I really want to camp. So we're just going to identify some things um, real briefly and keep moving. There's going to be a lot of data being presented to you or a lot of historical things being presented that are important uh, that we understand. So Paul uh, continues his missionary journey and it tells where he went in verse 13 and 14. You'll notice in verse 15, or for, I'm sorry, verse 14, when they arrive in Antioch in Pisidia, that's a different Antioch than what we know of at this point in time. This is a totally different location, which was not uncommon in that day. Even like today, you'll find various places in the United States where there's the same name of towns but different locations. Does that make sense? This is a different Antioch. In any case, when they arrive in this Antioch uh, in Pisidia, on the Sabbath day, they go to the synagogue. We don't know exactly what day they arrive, but on the Sabbath day, that is Saturday, they go to the synagogue and they went in to hear the reading of the, of the, um, of the Scriptures. And they sat down, it says. Verse 15, after the reading from the Law and Prophets, now, before we get beyond that passage, again, just a piece of data. When you see law and prophets in the Scriptures, it's very easy when you hear law, you just think of Deuteronomy, right? And when you hear prophets, you hear about the specific prophets, right? In the Scriptures, when you read the statement, law and prophets, understand it differently, please. When you see law and prophets, what it's, what it's talking about is the entirety of the Old Testament. There's nothing excluded from the statement law and prophets. Okay, so when you hear, and, and typically what they'd do is they'd read one section from the law somewhere, and then another one from the prophets, but it could be, those two, especially the prophets end of things, could come from anywhere. The law part would typically come from the fir- anywhere in the first five books, the Pentateuch. But reading from what they called the prophets could be anywhere afterwards, all the way through, uh, to, uh, from the Pentateuch all the way to uh, Malachi, through Malachi. So it could be anything. Law and prophets referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. So there would always be two readings in the synagogue. So it says, And on the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue and sat down. 
The Scripture was read, the Law and the Prophets. Both Scriptures were read. Whatever they were, we do not know. And then the rulers of the synagogue, it said, sent a message to them, this group, this small band that is traveling, these four people that are traveling and ministering the truth of the Gospel. They, we don't know the background. They may very well have talked to the rulers of the synagogue ahead of time. Or it could just be that the news of their coming had preceded them. We don't know. All we know is obviously the rulers of the synagogue knew they were there. And so it says, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message, that is, they probably sent a, um, a, a runner, as it were, to them. Uh, a, 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 someone who reported to the rulers of the synagogue, to the, uh, these people, and said that we know of in the beginning of 13, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So, in other words, they're being invited up in front of the synagogue to proclaim the gospel. Again, we don't know the background. These rulers of the synagogue could have already heard the basics either from these traveling missionaries or about what the traveling missionaries are proclaiming, showing that, and basically what they had been showing is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. Correct? Jesus is the fulfillment of Or to put it a different way, Jesus is what the law and prophets were looking toward. So whether the Spirit is working in them as in they're already being moved towards salvation or they're intrigued and they just want to hear more, we don't know at this point. Does that make sense? Either way, they are invited, which by the way, this is a really strong contrast to how the rulers of the synagogue will be later in the book of Acts. If you've read ahead, you know later in the book of Acts, it changes dramatically they just want these people dead kind of like what they did with jesus so we're going down that same path over the long stretch of the book of acts so they they send a message to the uh these gentlemen and say if you have any word of encouragement for the people say it and of course paul is the one who gets up he stood up and motioning with his hands he says and the next verse or the next statement in the end of verse 16, tells us who he's speaking to. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. What he just is presenting is this. Men of Israel would be who? The Jews. The men of Israel would be Jews. Those who fear God would be be Gentile proselytes. So you have Jews and Gentiles The Jews would be the people of Israel, these men of Israel, as it says, men of Israel, and you who fear God would be referring to anybody else that falls in the category of being here because you fear God. So there's Jews and Gentiles there. So what what, what you want to get from that statement at the end of 16 is simply this. What is happening is that we know right away who Paul is speaking to. This is radically different from when Paul goes up to Mars Hill, for example. And he speaks in the temple of Diana to the people at Mars Hill and introduces them to the unknown God. Because in that category, they don't know who God is. Correct? But in this statement, he's speaking to the men of Israel and those who fear God. In other words, men of Israel, those who are steeped in the Old Testament. They've been coming to, to, the, to the synagogue since they were born. They have been learning from the Old Testament since they were born. 
They've been steeped in the things of Judaism. Well-trained. And then these ones who fear God have joined in in the process of studying and learning. So everybody he's speaking to knows the Old Testament. As he speaks to them, verse 17 and following, what do we find? Well, from 17, verse 17 through till 25, all the way through 25, what we have is we have a, what would you say it is? 17 to 25, what is he talking about? He's talking history. And not just generic history, he's talking about the history of the Jews. He's talking about a history of God's people. More importantly, he's talking about a history of God working with His people. Correct? He's laying out the process of God God moving in history. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. There's God working, right? God called these people who were not His people and made them His people. And He um, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And then He led them out of it. So this is not necessarily primarily about Israel, is it? It's about God who is doing all these things. And he, so He tells the history, which is just a New Testament version of what Moses does in chapters 1-5 through five of the book of Deuteronomy. Except He takes it much further because there's a lot more history. Here he, in, in, in verse 19, after leading them through 40 years in the wilderness, verse 19, he gives them the land of Israel. You see that there? The promised land, verse 19, as an inheritance. Then he tells it took about 450 years. And then he, sa- he describes how he gave them judges to guide them and direct them. And then prophets. And then when they asked for king, they gave him, he gave them Saul. And then after Saul, then David. You see that's all right there. I'm just reviewing it with you. We're moving fast right now. Settling down just a little bit, you see verse 23, of this man, that is David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Now we make a huge leap from David just bypassing all the rest of history because all that matters is David and the promises to David, correct? Correct? The declarations, the prophecies to David about his offspring. So, who is all the offspring prophecies about? Paul is arguing it's all about Jesus. It was all looking to Jesus. And what he does from here on is to develop that. So, 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Remember, he's speaking to people who know the Old Testament very well. Um, before he, his coming, John had proclaimed a bas- baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Talking about uh, the prophecy that there would be someone who would come that would pave the way or prepare the way. And John was that one. Verse 25. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, um, 24 again. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance. Of course, repentance being central to the Gospel to all the people of Israel. Verse 25, And as John was finishing his course, he said at the end of his ministry, almost at the end of his ministry, what do you suppose that I am? I am not He. He makes a very clear declaration. I'm not the one promised. That is, 
the promised offspring of David. I'm not the one that has been prophesied as an offspring of David. I'm not he. No, but behold, after me is coming, uh, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. In other words, he's saying, you're all looking to me. People obviously were, right? They're coming out into the wilderness to hear John the Baptist proclaim the, the message of repentance. And he, out there in the wilderness, while they're coming, is saying, I'm not the one you're looking for. There's a greater one. How much greater than me? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy. In other words, the idea is, I'm not worthy to even touch him. It's a, a very much a deity statement. He is so something I'm not that I am in no way worthy of even untying his sandals. Starting in verse 26, Paul then begins to commentate, as it were, on what he just said about Jesus and about the whole Old Testament history. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. He says it again. He's speaking to Jews and Gentiles. Those, in other words, who know what I'm talking about. And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And he's saying this salvation that was promised, that was foretold, that was prophesied. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. What that means is, to us it has been fulfilled. It has been brought to fulfillment. Verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. Interesting statement, verse 27, isn't it? Did you hear what he said? He said, I'll read it again. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, who are those who lived in Jerusalem in Jesus' day? Jews, right? So when he's, when he's speaking to Jews and those who have proselytized, he's saying what? He's saying people just like you, isn't he? People who in every category and in every way are just like you did what? Because they did not recognize Him nor understand, understand the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. What's significant about what Paul just said? They missed the whole boat. Yeah, but more specifically, get dialed down to the moment where Paul is. Yes, he just said to him, just like those people in Jerusalem didn't understand, even though the utterances were being read to them every Saturday, right? And what happened that Saturday where Paul is right now? Just like we just did. Get it? Just like what just happened, you don't get it. You don't see it. You read the Law and Prophets and you don't see that what was just read is what? About this Jesus. That's what he said to him. And because at the end of verse 27, because they didn't understand that, what did those people in Jerusalem do? 
they fulfilled all those prophecies. <laughs> they fulfilled all of them because they didn't understand. What prophecies? Well, that he was going to be born, yeah, but that he was going to what? Be arrested, tried, suffer, and die. And then as a result, he would be raised again. Make sense? So what Paul says to these people, just like you missed it just 10 minutes ago, maybe 15 minutes ago, who knows how long Paul would preach, right? Just like they were, you just missed it too. So let me help you. That's why I'm talking the way I'm talking to you. That's what Paul's saying. That's why I'm laying this out for you because you missed it. You didn't understand what we just read. And I suspect, just a suspicion, we don't know what text he read. I suspect in that background historical reading was most likely, well, was, or not, not historical reading, but the historical um, recitation that Paul just did up to verse 26, I suspect was coming directly out of the law and prophets that they just read. What he was doing is he's saying, what we just read, well, that's about Jesus. I bet you didn't see it. That's what he's probably saying to him. Verse 28. And although they found in him no guilt worthy of death, now he's dialing it directly into his condemnation and death. Although they found nothing in him worthy of, of death, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So he's dead. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Isn't it interesting? If I may just, again, just quick and I'll get off of it. Unlike what happens in most of evangelism today, I want to point it out to you because I think it's really important. Although I'm just going to say it and get off of it. It is intriguing that you don't find Paul trying to prove and spending all sorts of time trying to prove that he was risen from the dead. Do you? You find the declaration, don't you? You find the declaration, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Talking about, of course, the apostles and disciples and other believers are doing what? Are proclaiming the truth, right? They're proclaiming the gospel. Just like what Paul's doing right here. Same thing. Verse 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it was written in the second psalm. What does Paul do? He says, now we're going to go back and what? We're going to refer back to the Old Testament. I want to remind you listeners in the synagogue in Antioch exactly what was said. Again, the presumption that they know the Scriptures. And then he quotes from the second Psalm and other places. The first one is, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That's, that, that Psalm was understood wrongly as referencing David more than anything else. And he's going to lay out very clearly that it wasn't David. But the idea of begotten, I've raised you up, and he's going to show that that means, because we typically think about begotten as in born, I'm the child of, but it's more the idea of being raised up. He goes on in verse 34, and for the fact that he raised him from the dead, there it is, begotten, raised up from the dead, 
He's just bringing it all to light. Raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. He's showing them what? That it's not about David, the the statement in in, uh, Psalm chapter 2. Instead, it's talking about Christ. He has spoken in this way. Then He goes on, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then verse 35, Therefore, He also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One what undergo decay or see destruction. Well, that can't be talking about David, even though it's written about and to David. It can't be referring to David. It has to be referring to the promised descendant of David. And that's exactly where he goes. Verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that is, he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption or experienced decay. He died and he rotted away. Verse 37, but when he whom God raised up did not see corruption, I'm sorry, but he whom God raised up, referring to who? Christ, Jesus, did not see corruption. He did not see decay. Quite to the contrary, he was raised in a glorified body. He goes on verse 38, and this is where now I want to focus a little bit. This is where it becomes important. You see, the application of the message, we have the historical in the beginning, right? And then we have the explanation of the historical in the second part, starting in verse uh, 26 and getting more intense in verse 28 and following through 37. But when you come to verse 38, all of a sudden, everything becomes application. Or, to put it a different way, how shall we respond? What is the importance of the text? Starting in verse 38, Paul says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, referring to Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So we'll stop right there. There's a two-part application of the text, of the message of Paul here. And the first application is this, in verse 38 and 39. Again, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins for the first time has come. Forgiveness of sins is available. Forgiveness of of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39. And by Him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed. From everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Think about who this is being spoken to. People of the law. And what Paul does is he gets up in front of these people who have been steeped in the law and the prophets. Who have been striving to obey the law who have been straining to keep the law. Who, because of the law, are at the synagogue 
this very day and are trying desperately hard to somehow earn something that cannot be earned. They missed it, right? They missed that even the very teaching of the law and prophets it said that you cannot measure up, right? You can't measure up. It's impossible. At the end of the day, you have this law that is a school, or I'm sorry, yes, yeah, schoolmaster that is trying to show you, not to get you to live a certain way, but to show you that you can't measure up. That you're absolutely doomed in every way. You have no hope. You can't be forgiven. And so that's why you rush off and you slaughter a bunch of lambs and other animals. Why? Well, the Old Testament tells you very clearly why. And the very clear reason why is not for forgiveness. Do you realize that? It's not forgiveness. It's covering. Hiding. Masking. A camouflaging, as it were, of sin. That's all, that's the only hope that the Old Testament people had. That somehow through the killing of these animals, that the wrath of God would be subdued, controlled. But even the Old Testament is really clear that the death of these animals and the blood of these animals could not what? What's that? Could make those who are unholy holy. It could not take away sin. It could not purify. Ultimately, it couldn't. All the all the sacrifices could do was to. If I could use the illustration, you've probably heard me use it before. We all it could do, and all it was intended to do, was to take the the, the sin of the people who are sacrificing, and it was as if we're sweeping the dirt under the rug. Hiding it. It's still there. But it, because of God's mercy, it temporarily holds back the wrath. That's all it does. It temporarily holds it back. Why is it temporary? Because you had to do it over and over and over and over again. Because it could not hold back the wrath of God ultimately. All it was designed to do by God's design was to hold back the wrath of God by covering temporarily until the, the fulfillment of time when the true Lamb of God would come. And for once, would, if I may use the illustration, take that rug, lift it up, and pull all the, the millennia of sin and remove it as far as the east was from the west. But it took the perfect Lamb of God to do that. That's what Paul is talking about. Christ has come. The one prophesied, the perfect Lamb of God. The one who would no longer cover sin, but for the first time ever would remove it. How do I know, by the way, in the Old Testament that it didn't cover sin? Because no matter how much you sacrifice, you still couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies. You could not. If you entered into the Holy of Holies, you would die. You had no hope to 
come before the presence of God. You just didn't. But now, what happened when, when the perfect Lamb of God was slain? What happened to the Holy of Holies? The curtain was torn from the top to the bottom and the Holy of Holies was exposed to everyone. Why? Because now we could enter into the presence of God. So he says in verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And the implication in Paul's statement in verse 39 is, and you know it. You know that nothing you did, no matter how hard you tried, no matter how many sacrifices you did, you know that your sins were not dealt with. You know it. But now, forgiveness is available. Before, it was only covering. Now, forgiveness. So the call in verse 38 and 39 is what? The application is what? Come to Jesus, right? Via repentance, come to Jesus, be forgiven, and be made whole in the family of God. And then the second application is in 40 and 41. Beware. Total shift, 180 degrees. However, you could throw a however in there. However, beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about and the implication is regarding you. Does that make sense? So, before we go on to 41, real quickly, what do we have? We have, there is hope where there was no hope before except for a hope that, it w- that Christ would come, the Redeemer would come, the Messiah would come. I'm telling you, He has come. He's fulfilled the Old Testament. He perfectly fulfilled the prophecies. He has come. He has died. He has rose again. Sin has been atoned for. Sin, Satan, death, all power destroyed. Repent and believe. Isn't that verse 38 39? Repent and believe. However, if you don't, the warning comes in. If you don't, beware lest what is said in the prophet should come about with regard to any of us. Verse 41, look you, what? Scoffers. If you wonder what a scoffer is, I'm just going to refer to Rusty's message a couple weeks ago. Look you scoffers, be astounded, and what? And what? Perish. Not be saved. Interestingly enough, he's saying if we don't repent and believe, we are what? A scoffer. Right? If we don't repent and believe, we are a scoffer. That's the only categories Paul gives here. You either repent and believe or you're a scoffer. And he says, for those of you who are scoffers, beware. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish for i am doing a work in your days a work which you will not believe even if one tells it to you the very in other words he's giving a very definition of what being a scoffer he's saying you better pay attention and by the way the statement in verse 41 when he says look you scoffers be astounded and perish what do you think he's the reference is to 
What does that sound familiar with? Where else do you see a large group in the Old Testament of scoffers? Okay, in the Old Testament. A large group of... What? Think about a bigger group of scoffers than, 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 the, than the people wandering in the wilderness. Before then. Noah's flood. For 120 years, what was preached? Repent and believe, right? In that case, it was repent and believe the prophecies of the coming Messiah that you need a Redeemer. Correct? And the people did what? They repented and believed. No. Nobody did. They were all scoffers. They didn't listen. Can I just ask you a question? Think back to the story. When the door of the ark closed, were the people outside the ark astounded? It's pouring rain. Everything's filling up. Less and less land. More and more water. People are being jammed and falling. Think of how it really was. They're jammed into smaller and smaller pieces of land. And then they're slowly but surely on the edges falling into the water and drowning. Isn't that what's happening? As the water gets higher. Think they were astounded at all this? They heard the message. 120 years they heard the message. They scoffed. And then in a moment's notice, the door closed and everything changed to being astounded. But what happened? They all perished. So he says to scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if someone tells it to you, which is exactly what he's doing. But the scoffers are going to do what? Scoffers are going to scoff. Verse 42. As they went out, that is, the meeting ended, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, there's the Jews and Gentiles, did what? They followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, did what? Urged them to continue in the grace of God. You know what he's talking about? There is a large group in Antioch that got saved. There's a large group in Antioch that ceased being scoffers. And they began to believe, repent and believe, 38 and 39. They ceased being 30, uh, 40 and 41. And they began to follow Him, follow, follow Jesus, and listen. they continued to listen to uh, Paul and Barnabas. At which point in time, what did Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas tell these people? And he only told those people what? Continue in the grace of God. That is, continue fellowshipping with Jesus. Continue to learn of Jesus. In other words, Paul and Barnabas kept saying, continue to drink deeply at the fountain of living water. Continue to, to eat of the bread of life. Isn't that what he's telling them? It's exactly what he's telling them. But where are the scoffers? They're not there. And next story, we're going to find it gets really ugly really quickly. 
the point of the message this morning is very clear. Paul lays it out very clearly, doesn't he? In light of the truth of the Gospel, there are two groups of people. There are people who repent and believe, and there are scoffers. There are no other groups. We don't repent and believe. We are by definition in the Scriptures what? A scoffer. And if we're a scoffer, there's only one thing left. And the one thing left is what? It's being astounded and perishing. And the Scriptures tell us that that is the case. Clearly, from Genesis through Revelation, it is clearly the case that there is coming a day of judgment. There's coming a day when all will stand before the judge. And we will hear many, it will be said to, depart from me, I never knew you. That's what the Scriptures tell us. People have every right not to believe that. But the simple reality is, when we don't embrace that, when we don't believe that, the result will be judgment. The call of the text is to repent and believe. And it's not just to repent and believe, but it, along with that, if I'm repenting and believing, what do I, what, what's the next response? Continue in the grace of God. Right? If I'm repenting and believing, then what's left? Continue in the grace of God. Continue to learn of Jesus and fellowship with Jesus and worship Jesus and continue to repent and believe. Right? Continue to, as I said, drink of the fountain of living water to fellowship with Jesus, the fountain of living water, and discover His richness, His beauty. How amazing He really is. And the more we discover of Him as saved people, the more we're going to want more of Him. So the question before us is, are we a scoffer? Or are we one who repents and believes? That's it. And the challenge to ask ourselves is, what is the evidence? See, because I think of scoffers as people who, who go out and they... They mock Jesus. They ridicule the things of Jesus. They ignore the things of Jesus. They ridicule the things of Christianity. Whatever the case may be, hmm, scoffers are, are ones who don't continue in the grace of God. That's who scoffers are. It includes that other group I talked about. But scoffers, I think there's a lot of people in the church that are scoffers that would say, yeah, of course I'm saved but they're not continuing the grace of God. They don't find knowing Christ and worshiping Christ and, 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 and studying and learning and tasting and seeing and being intimate with Christ as anything valuable or marginally valuable. I would argue those are some of the worst scoffers. Because they have a form of godliness, but they deny, it, they deny its power. And they are warned of very strongly in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So let's come to the fountain of living water, shall we? Let's enjoy Jesus together and repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, help us.
we know that it is very easy to be deceived. And in fact, it is very easy to be self-deceived. And so we ask that you will work in each one of us this morning. That we will, we will be reminded if we are people who are scoffers or people by your grace and mercy and by your Spirit's work in our lives that we are people who repent and believe. Are we people who are enthralled with Jesus, our Redeemer, our Messiah? Or are we caught up with other things? Open our eyes to see who we really are in light of who you really are for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. As we move to communion, I think the message that we find this morning is especially appropriate, as every message probably is. The message this morning basically is we need Jesus.